Price caps and labor strikes hit the EU energy market. It's another perfect storm. I'm Monica Perez, and this is today's Deep Dive. If you want to listen to this Deep Dive commercial-free, there are a couple of different ways to do that. You can go to Deep Dives with Monica Perez, my podcasting feed. It's me and only me, everything I do there. And it's commercial-free, at least for now. So you can find this and everything I do there. Also, you can get everything I do on Rockfin commercial-free, rockfin.com slash propaganda report. You can also get everything that Binkley does commercial-free, including his premium stuff. You also get my videos there. You can't get my videos everywhere. For example, if you're listening to this show as soon as it drops... Friday morning, October 14th, 2022, you can zip right over as soon as you're finished listening to this and catch my live dive with Ian Davis. We're going to talk about his series, The Multipolar World Order. We're going to do part two, and it's really fascinating. You know how I ask every single one of my guests, like, what do you think the true nature of power in the world is? Today, like he comes the closest to having a really well-researched, well-thought-out answer. And I've just been really interested in peeling that onion with him. So I'll do that live at 11 a.m. Pacific. I can do that on Rumble and Rockfin. I can't do it on YouTube because he's too hot to handle. But you can find that at rockfin.com slash propaganda report. You can also find it at Rumble, at the Monica Perez Show, or on Twitter, at Monica Perez Show, it'll stream from there too. Although I've been pretty glitchy on Twitter, really have some problems there. I couldn't log in today. And then when I did log in, all of who I was following disappeared. So my followers are still there, but my followings are gone. And I'm a little afraid that's the flicker before <laughs> the blackout. So you can always find me at monicasdeepdives.com. I hate to give you all this, uh, all these commercials ahead of time, but, um, this is what's happening right now, and I just want to make sure you know. So hopefully we'll see you there, and let us get up on the diving platform and check out the headline that's on the deck. Oil refinery strike grips France amid energy crisis. And the subtitle is, over 30% of the country's gasoline stations have supply shortages resulting from the walkout. Now, if you've been listening to me, that my deep dives, even following me on Twitter, you will see that hashtag that I created a while ago, another perfect storm. There was literally a perfect storm headline on this one, um, just getting into all the things that are going wrong in France when it comes to energy. But it's even bigger than that. This is really about, uh, I would say, a multi-pronged approach to the energy sector in Europe and it is, I think, designed to serve a multi-pronged agenda. So there's a lot of things happening at once. You know me with the perfect storms. There's like, this is a perfect storm within a perfect storm because it's hitting the specific energy uh, issues in France, which are facing a lot of hysteria. They're blaming it on Russia, but there are a lot of factors contributing to their energy price problems. And the bigger perfect storm is kind of a worldwide attack on all conventional or even just non-green energy supplies. So I want to kind of do this in an orderly fashion. I usually get ahead of myself. I'm going to try not to do that. So let's just take it step by step. Start with this, this article. Uh, there was actually... 
<laughs> the article has its own kind of nesting situation because there was a an alternate headline in the print version, which is what I read, and it said, refinery workers extend their walkout, deepening energy woes fueled by Russian cuts. Okay, so this is the subtitle in the print version of the Wall Street Journal, already complete, deliberate misinformation, disinformation, whatever, and I can tell you how I know on Wall Street Journal's own website. So it says that it's fueled by Russian cuts. And it goes on to say, Moscow's decision to cut natural gas deliveries because of Europe's support for Ukraine has sent French gas and electricity prices soaring. Now, a lot of things have sent the gas and electricity prices soaring, but the cuts that they're talking about, to the extent you can even classify them as cuts, was not because of Europe's support for Ukraine. And how do I know that? Well, I did a lot of research on that, and but really, I went to the online version of this article. I clicked through because it was hot link there, and then there was an article that didn't really offer evidence for that, but in that article was another thing I could click through. So I clicked through to the ultimate source, which was a Wall Street Journal article that said, Gazprom says it will reduce flows via the pipeline, a Nord Stream pipeline, to a fifth of capacity because of a turbine issue because of a turbine issue. And I would say they may be second guessing whether it was naturally occurring turbine issue or if it was sabotage, because since this time, this, this article is kind of old that I clicked through, clicked through, clicked through. Now the problem of course, is that there was those explosions at the Nord Stream pipeline. Um, I think two was taken out and part of one was also taken out. Yet Putin says to this day that he will deliver all the gas that he is under contract to deliver if the contracts are fulfilled. However, the contracts are not being paid in full in rubles. I think he's demanding rubles maybe because he's no longer allowed to trade on SWIFT. I don't know. I don't know if it was in the original contract or what, but he's saying they're not paying him, and he that's the reason that he is not going to push supplies out, and that's reasonable of him. And it also points to this idea for me that the perfect storms that we're seeing aren't organic. I mean, how many perfect storms could there be? It's the rareness of it that gives it that handle, but that they're not organic, they're manufactured. And it would just be like a major false flag could account for any single catastrophe, but the false flags are getting a little old. I did a whole show on this on another perfect storms. So when they look at that, the you know whether they want to do false flag or not they just can't always do that so what they do is they create multiple factors that result in these problems and in this case it's multiple factors resulting in each of multiple problems so they are misrepresenting one of the factors so russia was not delivering the gas they closed down the pipeline to fix the turbine they were ready to open it up again they might have actually opened it up again and then just like the baby formula factory hit by another disaster Okay, so let's get back to the main heading here about the French strike. The article says that CGT, quote, France's left, far left union is continuing a strike that has hobbled refineries. So they just slipped in that politically charged thing. They're really, I think, trying to undermine unions and labor. And I think the unions themselves are also trying to do that. But in the meanwhile, they're using the unions to their own 
device to their own purposes, I think. So they're saying that they left this strike, this refinery strike. And when I was talking about our gasoline prices, I dug and dug and dug and concluded that it was because we had maybe a third of the refineries that we had 40 years ago. And that some of them that were going to limp along for a while just closed down permanently during COVID. So refineries are an issue. And I guess they don't have the same like natural refinery problem that we have. Maybe they haven't been uh, offlining them for as long. So this strike is accelerating that process and it left more than 30% of gas stations short of gas, causing lines, causing lines. This is really important. The government says the quote, this is a Macron representative, the impact of the social conflict has been unbearable for many French. So that means pain. It's pain. And that reminds me of what Elul said about obsessional propaganda. So in the U.S., they brought rations and other inconveniences during the wars, even though they weren't necessary here because the powers that be wanted, or you could call it the U.S. government or whatever, wanted the people to feel the pain, to, I don't know what, have that war mentality for a variety of reasons. This is like that, feel the pain. So here we are with a, yet another union creating more pain, specifically in sectors that are already feeling pain. So I don't know if you've noticed that, if I've mentioned that before, but the unions are contributing to perfect storms and they are making things worse in specific situations that are already bad. There's nurses on strike, teachers, food service workers, rail workers, dock workers. And on top of that, it has a more general impact on inflation and the instability that people are feeling. And this is generally not a smart tactic. That's not something that you would do if you wanted sympathy for the union. But it, ha it does serve some purposes. It serves that feel the pain purpose. It demonstrates our vulnerability to labor disputes and kind of creates an appetite for, to the scary like American consumer to automate things, especially in essential industries. So things that are really important, like the rail workers, like they should not really, there are rules against them being able to strike for a reason because it can be so disruptive. And COVID also made people feel really vulnerable to having mere humans on the front lines of commerce. So people are kind of freaked out about having to depend on human beings. And this is making it worse, not better. Is that in the best interest of the workers? I would say not. And so that I think there's something else going on there. I think that the unions are serving another master. I've thought that for the longest time, that they are there just like the HR department at your company. They tell you that they're there to help you and protect you, but they're absolutely there to protect the company. Just think about it for a second. The reason the company has that, the reason the company has an accounting department, the law department, environmental compliance department, is to protect the company against you know laws or threats. So they are clearly... I feel like the labor unions are going into that camp. I think you can see it everywhere. And, and I think of them as kind of an arm of the political machine, which obviously that's always been true. I'm not like revealing something to you, but I guess the way I always thought about it was that unions kind of did their own thing. They were their own power center. They did some 
uh, wheeling and dealing and they would have to kind of protect their people, but they could still get their payola from whomever. But it feels more to me like they've been totally subsumed, is that the right word, into that corpo-governmental machine. And they share a characteristic with the the tone, the mood of how they're operating. It, it seems to have undergone like a real shift, like a paradigm shift, just like politics in this. That when I was growing up in the 80s, the politics were that people that that the politicians were looking for harmony they were looking for consent they wanted approval they wanted people to vote for them they always went towards the middle they always reached across the aisle for their own interests like they it, they would lose credit if they like pissed people off and i guess the turning point on that was was seeing how the aggressive divisiveness of Obamacare and the dirty dealing and the fact that it, it they got away with it and the the Republicans obviously let it happen because Ted Cruz had the right idea with his filibuster but never really brought it home. Like the they could have just stopped it by stopping the process and they didn't do it. So ever since that, it seems like conflict is the name of the game. I think there was a leaked document that said Obama wasn't going to support blue collar white people anymore, middle class, something like that, you know, and to have something like that out there, it was obviously leaked on purpose. It went to divisiveness. And I feel like this, like pissing people off with the rail, railroad strikers, for example, or the railroad union not signing off on the deal, which looks so good to the rest of us and everybody kind of emphasizing what a good deal they have. And I'm not even saying like, I know for sure I do have people who are telling me both sides of the story, but it just isn't being portrayed sympathetically in the media. And this kind of thing, like exacerbating perfect storms just makes it worse. And, and politicians are doing that too. They're just pissing people off. And it just makes no sense to me, except for the fact that now we have this, um, the power base of conflict, I guess is how I would call it. And the labor unions, the people, the workers are getting this false sense of security and power false in a lot of different things are contributing to this. All of which I thought were screwy along the way. So COVID obviously screwy, but it did make some people like freaked out about going to work, especially frontline workers. And I'm talking about like, you know, people were just manning cash registers and stuff like that was something that, you know, you see those plexiglass in front of them. Like this is that kind of feel the pain, obsessional propaganda. You see a visual that probably has no value, but that, that was really coming from people. But then you had, or like provoked in real people. But the, then you had this, the vax mandates that were causing like cops and stuff to march down the Brooklyn bridge. Like it was really creating problems. It was decimating labor pools. Some places backed off and let people come back, but some didn't so that you have like nursing shortages. You, you, you still have airline shortages. There are a lot of places where the vaccines they're not being credited for it, but are creating real labor shortages. And there was that whole thing of the great resignation. People were just resigning all over the place. And I was like, come on, like if you're insisting on working from home or you're looking for a better gig, yes, there's going to be some period where you're going to get more money for now. But though now that we've been pushed into Zoom land, 
and so many jobs have can either be replaced, mechanized, or replaced virtually, then you have this labor pool that can tap into India and stuff. So you you are going to lose your power. And actually, that to me points to a major agenda here, which I don't know if I had realized before. I might have, but it just came alive for me again now. So what's the agenda here? The labor itself and the unions are being weaponized by the corpo-governmental continuum to achieve economy-changing goals. Very great reset E. And the Great Reset has a lot to do with one of their subjects is, quote, the future of labor, the future of work, I think it's called. But a lot of these elements here, Zoom, automation, and cutting the cost of real live human beings, cutting the need for real live human beings, pushing human beings into the coding world, it's really trying to take them out of the uh, of the human-facing world for probably a lot of reasons, cultural reasons, stuff like that. But as, as things like labor from India encroaches on a wider group of our laws, like, like if you call centers are a lot of Indian call centers, you can tell when you talk to them, that's because call centers could be offshored. Now so much more can be offshored. And what might happen next? You might have a call for international labor laws for an international minimum wage maybe um, pegged to a basket of goods or something within that country. But the fact is, these are the stepping stones to world government. A big one is that universal financial tax, which nobody knows, nobody cares about. It's a tiny tax on big money, won't affect you. But it's putting the apparatuses in place or creating demand for or acceptance of kind of world government level laws, mechanisms. So I think that the that the unions are a big part of this. And, and then the other piece of this puzzle on this particular headline is the energy. Energy is being hit on all sectors, except for the green stuff, of course. And I had just, it's just everything but the green stuff. And I feel like everything but the green stuff is good and useful and helps us. And that the green stuff is the stuff that's slow and inefficient and is messing up the grid. And I feel like they're really impoverishing us. I think Delling Paul says it, and I've said it too. Like, it's because they hate you. They hate you and they want you to, you know, they want to control you. I mean, it sounds, it sounds like the kind of villain stuff that I don't usually like to indulge in, but they effectively hate you. And if they can impoverish you, like they always say, if you're poor, you reproduce more. So, that's like, I don't know, Bill Gates's thing. Like you make people, you know, lift people up and they'll, they'll produce less, give them vaccines and have their babies live longer and they won't have as many kids. Well, that may be true in rural, poor third world countries, but I have noticed this in Europe for decades. And I attribute it to like this socialism where there's like really high tax rates, low payout in order to get more money. You go and have to protest. You can't just move around and get a new job there's a lot of stuff that really makes you feel like you don't have a lot of wiggle room in your income level. And, and what, what is one way that you can kind of boost your income a little bit? Well, cut your costs, you know, cut how many kids you have. And that's why they attribute like a carbon footprint to a person. 
And I feel like if they're going to raise energy prices across the board, make it scarce, make it expensive, they want maybe the entire Western world and, of course, ultimately the entire world, you know, to kind of feel poorer. And I think it may be the population agenda. So let me just run through what I think they they do have on the energy crisis, like on all points, the refineries. So the energy sector, yes, is being hit in anything that isn't green. Start with the refineries. We already talked about that. Our refineries are getting shut down because they're not up to snuff on the environmental stuff. And they're switching to green like biofuels, but it's taking a very long time. And I think that's the number one reason our gas prices are too high. And then they've got these strikes now to make this impact gasoline prices in France. They have sanctioned Russia with the gasoline or not allowed ships to be insured, which has affected grain shipments and stuff. So they've done a lot of things to make oil also more expensive coming out of Russia. Natural gas prices are going up as supplies are getting pinched as winter comes. And the supplies are getting pinched for reasons that the that people in the West are implementing. So the Nord Stream pipeline, the, the problems with that are coming from, I mean, I assume that that the West is the one who sabotaged that. There's no way Germany would have to, I mean, uh, Russia would. So that is creating a problem. And they're saying that Russia's cutting off the gas, but they don't want to. They will if they don't get paid. And another thing that's happening right now, which is not getting any press, I don't think, maybe people have heard of it. I, it was new to me. The EU is forming a consortium of gas purchasers, natural gas purchasers, and they're seriously considering and trying to get done a gas cap. So all of Europe is going to get together and they're going to agree on the ceiling price that they're going to pay for natural gas on a world market. So what do you think is going to (laughs) happen? They're not going to get any gas. And if they do succeed in getting some gas at that price, if the market clears at some for some amount of gas, as it as the price is depressed, people aren't going to have that signal to consume less. So they're going to gobble it all up and create shortages a couple of months down the road when I think Germany has like two months worth of reserves. If you don't, that's why price gouging is good because you raise the prices of things that are scarce so that people know only to use it when it's worth that much. So, so the Europe is ginning up this, this combination of gas shortage because Putin has contracts and he has said, I'm not going to capitulate to gas ceilings, price ceilings. We have long-term contracts that are in terms that were established before. So it's not like I'm exploiting the crisis. I'm just, I want that price and I'm not taking your dumb price. And China and India are going to take whatever the market price is. So this is not going to work. Oh, and one thing that they were doing is they were going to carve out, they're already talking about carving out LNG, liquefied natural gas, from those caps because they're saying, well, LNG is a world market, but pipelines aren't. They come straight to us, but that's bull because the pipelines get gas from a place and that can push it into other pipelines like the the Turkish stream, which is also being sabotaged, by the way. Putin just arrested some people for sabotaging that. And Turkey was going to be a gas hub, take it from Russia and push it up to Europe so they didn't have to depend on the Nord Stream. I mean, that's a whole nother can of worms. I think Syria is about that. I think a lot of things are about that. So uh, I saw a tweet from Marin Matters that says, 
Putin hints at culprits behind Nord Stream sabotage. And this is a quote from Putin at Russian Energy Week this week. So get this. Everybody understands who is behind this and who is the beneficiary. One can now force the liquefied natural gas from the U.S. onto European countries on a much larger scale. That is what I was thinking was happening for the longest time. I mean, as a matter of fact, I think in my earliest shows on this, I thought that was the number one reason. And I guess I lost the thread on that because there's been so much noise since then. But yeah, I mean, that could be the number one reason. And then... And then, and I hate that because I worked in, my first job out of college was in the oil and gas sector little department at Citibank. And LNG, liquefied natural gas, is super dangerous because it's highly compressed. And if it, there are double hull ships and stuff, and if a little drop of it gets in and it starts to expand uncontrollably, it'll blow the whole ship up, the whole port up. It's crazy. I think LNG is nuts. I mean, maybe it's better now. I don't understand how it could possibly be. The only way to make it better is have fail safes because it is compressed gas to the point where it's turned into a liquid. But Right now, so another article, separate article from all this other stuff saying the UK is looking to sign a 20-year contract with the US for liquefied natural gas. And I think the UK, they have North, uh, North Sea oil reserves, which always the oil reserves have gas on top of them. So I'm sure they have tons of gas. I don't know what the heck, but um, maybe they just don't have enough. And without any European supplies, they're willing to do that. Plus, of course, they're in bed with us. Um, Putin actually said it's the Anglo-Saxons, which I guess is his code for the US-UK axis. Anyway, so... Um, he said he's not putting up with the price caps. He said he can deliver on all of his contracts, but he is not putting up with the price caps. I guess some of the Nord Stream is still functioning. Anyway, then I discovered that not only is the EU talking about natural gas caps, Yellen is talking about oil price caps. This is probably something that's been floating around, but I just didn't put it together with all this other stuff. She wants to cap it at $60 a barrel when the market price looks like it's going to be $100 a barrel for a while. And uh, again, Putin's like, no, (laughs) you know, he's got China and India. He doesn't need this crap. And we have our own. So if if that doesn't work, either we'll just consume all our own. Are we going to put a cap on our own production and consumption? That makes no sense. I think actually it's just on Russian. I think she said it would just be on Russian, which, of course, again, makes no sense because it's a it's a the market is fluid. It doesn't work that way. But. The thing I thought was the biggest, you know, aha moment for me in all of this is, and it's, it has been like germinating in my mind for a while, they are also undermining nukes. They're undermining nukes. So I was listening to, or I was remembering, I covered Fukushima a lot a, a, a long time ago, and it seemed like that tsunami may have been manufactured. And actually, if you look it up, I, I uh, looked into it a bit, Google uh, Project Seal. It's the tsunami bomb. And they, they said that they've been saying for decades and decades that they could do it, that they just aren't doing it. But I think they did do it. And after Fukushima, Germany tur- shut down its its nuclear power plants. I mean, that is just crazy. I mean, that is such a clean, efficient uh, source of energy. And they're hitting that. And here is what was super nuts about this Perfect Storm article, what I'm calling the Perfect Storm, is this quote, just 
just slid in there among all the other crap that's creating energy problems for them. More than half of France's 56 nuclear reactors are offline because of corrosion discovered on pipes that cool the reactor cores and need maintenance. Half of their reactors are offline because of corrosion. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. And that totally reminded me of Texas when Texas had that big blackout. Well, they were all offline because of maintenance. It's like, why? You know, it's like the fighter jets being down on 9 11. It's like, why? You know, why? How, how did that sneak up on you? Anyway, here's how strikes at EDFSA, France's state controlled power company, have delayed the repairs needed to start the reactors. <laughs> so, Labor strikes again in the perfect storm. So I just feel like these things that I didn't really understand what was happening. I didn't understand how the unions were fitting in. I didn't understand how Fukushima was fitting in. Um, I just didn't understand how a lot of these things were fitting in. And I think that they're all coming together to to do like many agenda items, but really to hit energy, not because they want us to move to green, because nukes are I mean, they're like the least green ever, in my opinion. Like you have nuclear waste, which is like crazy. But as far as the greens go, it doesn't put carbon dioxide, which is good for plants, into the air. <laughs> so they should be liking it. And I think Greta comes out and says, you eat more nukes, you know, whatever. So what, but like in the upshot, what are all the agenda items that might be served by by these things that are happening to energy, that how the unions are being used. One, of course, they want to demonize Russia. Um, but another thing, and this was really shocking to me, because I remember reading a book by Servando Gonzalez called Psychological Warfare in the New World Order, maybe. He's from Cuba, and he says in that book, and I always wanted to interview him, and I think I may have emailed him a couple of times. If anybody knows him, feel free to get him on my show. He said that Cuba was the most advanced Central American, even, you know, beyond country, and that because of that, they were used as an experiment to deindustrialize, to see what it would be like to deindustrialize a kind of advanced economy. And that I think he thinks that Castro was in on it. And he does show a letter, which I have seen when Castro was 12. He wrote to FDR, and I'm just wondering, I think FDR might have answered him. <laughs> I don't know. So he was saying that they deindustrialized Cuba as a prototype for a more widespread deindustrialization. And I was like, well, it's been a while. I don't know. Well, I found an article in the journal that said, this is a, this is a quote, maybe even the subtitle, the energy crisis has left few businesses untouched and some factories might never reopen. And then in the article, it says this. The question is whether the current pain is temporary or marks the start of a new era of deindustrialization in Europe. Wow. Wow. It goes on to say, the bloc has scoured the world for alternative gas supplies, striking deals to buy gas from the U.S. What is that? That's LNG, obviously, Qatar and elsewhere. But the continent might never again have access to the cheap Russian gas that helped it compete with the resource-rich U.S. and offset high labor costs, rigid employment rules, and stringent environmental regulations. People in Europe are scared and pissed about what's going on here. And they are mad at us for being behind it. I think their own leaders are, uh, are betraying them. I think the UK and the US, I think Putin's right about that. Now, you know, we're going to talk to Ian today. 
So I'm not a, a Putin fanboy, but he's telling the other side of the story here. And there is an other side of the story. Our side of the story is, is a lie. And there's a lot of bad stuff going on. Of course, he's going to tell us about it. And you can find any bad stuff he's doing everywhere. It's hard to under, to curate what's bull and what's real, but I'm sure there's plenty of real bad stuff. I went to Russia and they think that he's a in bed with the oligarchs or exploiting the system and all that. So I'm not saying he's good. I'm just saying he's right. And then uh, also I had, I saw some European friends recently who are installing smart meters into their homes and they said, well, people will balk if a rule comes down that everybody has to do it. So, you know, things will have to get a lot worse if that's, if that's really what we need to do. And I'm like, oh, these people aren't in the rabbit hole, but I'm like, oh, well, then you can be absolutely assured that things will get a lot worse until people put smart meters in. Just, uh, just for one thing, because the smart meters are surveillance and control. I mean, then you don't even have to worry about the prices and the supply and everything. You can just go in and shut it down. You can make stuff up. You can have a Texas moment. It's just, you can do, you can have that control and you can have surveillance. I mean, even you can surveil what people are doing, but they say those things will even listen to you. Not that there isn't everything that will listen to you. But then I go back to the idea. Also, another agenda item is that they really want to slow us down. They really want to immobilize us. They want to keep us from getting the supplies we need. I think they're just slowing us down in a lot of different ways. And I guess it could fall under the umbrella of deindustrialization, de facto deindustrialization. I mean, if, you know, reducing our ability to consume, our autonomy, our ability to travel. I mean, I've been wondering about that. They really hit the airlines, the shipping, the rails, the trucks. Think about that. Those things are being hit by bottlenecks, by perfect storms, by labor unrest. That all says to me that they're ready to slow us down, shut us down, maybe prepare for a new iron curtain with this, you know, East versus West war. Uh, whether it's cold or hot, I don't know. It's easier to control people who are kind of neutralized and in situ, like in the place where they are. That's probably not the right way to say it. And then I was thinking, you know, but they really depend on um, mass migration to have this cultural unrest. And I think we're going to soon hit, if we haven't already hit, the point where the U.S. is, you know, minority white. And like the China is the world dominant economic country. And they may have reached what they, what they're going for, for the, for the migration disruption thing, the way I think they may have put the wheels in motion for the population bomb, like reverse bomb, the population bust. And they can reverse course on that because they know that the things that are going to impact population, poverty, the vax, COVID, whatever, are already doing their work. And they can actually plan for 20 years down the line in case there's a crisis, you know, like they, or they can anticipate that you have to reverse course of this, you know, ocean liner sooner. Maybe that's true also for the migration. And, and I think about like, was it the Sykes-Pico agreement that changed the face of the Middle East intentionally stitching together different tribes or different people, different languages, different cultures, so that the countries wouldn't be functional? Well, after a while, I think Nasser was the first one to kind of start making this happen. They went secular 
and just started to get along. Syria is an example of that, actually. It's a very diverse culture. And the guy was from, the guy who leads it, Assad, is from a minority. So as the countries, so think about the countries that were taken out, that are attacked by us. Syria, Egypt was, Nasser was an enemy, considered an enemy. Um, Hussein, Iran back in the day was secular. Afghanistan was secular before we started messing around. Before we put the Shah in, Iran was secular. Mossadegh was the guy we took out there. Um, the Shah of Iran was installed at that time. Afghanistan, uh, we had, when we started Charlie Wilson's war, Afghanistan was secular. It was going communist, but we put the Muslims in there for that. Iran, we, we, we put the Ayatollah in there and took the Shah out. Like we've been moving towards then making it, uh, trying to kind of deindustrialize it by telling them that there's, I, I read this in my research of like Bernard Lewis, Samuel Huntington, the clash of civilizations, that kind of stuff where they're saying they imparted or the research I did around that. So they imparted like a, a sense of deindustrialization to the Muslims, like an idea that, um, prosperity or whatever material stuff, like they overemphasize that they made them more religious and emphasize certain things over others in order to, uh, you know, revamp their strategy over there. And, Maybe they've gotten to the point where they feel like at this point they've done all they can with migratory disruption and now they're just going to lock us down and let that maybe stew. And I just, I feel like they have very, very long-term plans. And uh, I will save for another time if uh, we get to like who's responsible for Nord Stream, who is responsible for the Crimean Bridge, who is responsible for Turkey. I mean, Putin seems to be laying on, on the line. I'll just tell you, he made arrests on Crimea he pointed the finger at the head of Ukraine uh, military intelligence, I think. Uh, the Turkish, Turk stream sabotage, they also made arrests on. So maybe that'll be for, for another time. And, uh, but I would say, you know, I know that this stuff seems super scary, but more and more, I feel like there are two sides to this game. And although Ian will tell us, like, there are no good guys in this fight, that's okay because I would rather have them slow each other down at the top than unite forces and accelerate what they're trying to do at the bottom. Like I am like, believe it or not, for the first time, I'm not totally convinced or like recently I've become less convinced that this thing is in the bag, that the technocracy is in the bag. And I almost feel like the World Economic Forum, Great Reset stuff, getting so much attention is meant to demoralize us, is to meant to get us to think that it's inevitable. And that gives me hope too. So uh, if you enjoyed this podcast, please share it on social media or with someone you think would also enjoy it. Feel free to tweet at me at Monica Perez Show uh, for as long as that lasts. And if that is gone by the time we talk, <laughs> go to monicasdeepdives.com. I think the pool is working. So take a dive, take a dive. You'll find a tab there that says dive and you can start posting articles there. We can chat there. Maybe we should take it for a test run. I hope I'm not jumping the gun here. Let's give it a shot. So if you're around, if you, if you registered, you do have to register, but it, there's nothing to it. I will never, you know, I'll send you an email once a month with the newsletter. Maybe if I have a live dive, I want to tell you about, but basically it's just to keep like, uh, the bots and the trolls out. So if you're registered, you want to register, go to monicasdeepdives.com and take a dive, take a dive in the press pool. <laughs> Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you again soon. <laughs>